Hello everyone. Ahead of the episode, here's a few words from Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey Adam. How's it going, Scott? It's going well. Do you want to give me a quick recap on Firehouse Training for June and what you've got on point for July? Yeah, June was very busy for us. We had a full house for fire safety strategies for fire security and police. Really good turnout dealing with building familiarization, fire protection, fire safety plans, smoke alarms, and various equipment. We also had Zoom fire educational sessions every Thursday of each week covering various topics. We also had guest speaker Suzanne Bernier, author of the hit book Disaster Heroes. She had the opportunity to travel all over the world following major disasters and interview real-life heroes. Coming up this month in July, we have our most popular course of the year, High-Rise Fire Safety Tactics for the Fire and Emergency Services. Now, this course is currently over 50% sold out. We currently have aspiring firefighters and firefighters from fire departments all over the U.S. and Canada. We have some training officers and even some chiefs that are taking part to learn a little bit more about the tactics and strategies, putting all those different pieces of the puzzle together when fighting a specialized fire uh, that you would find in a high-rise situation. Another course we have coming up this month is called Leadership Fundamentals for the Fire Service. And that runs on July 4th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. It's a Zoom online live course. So lots of good information there. We will have some guest speakers as well. So we're very excited for that. On July 11th, we have our career coaching day where we're going to be doing everything from resume and cover letter prep, mock interview prep, and also some application assistance for those looking to get into the fire service. July 19th, we're offering a trench rescue awareness course. And also on July 25th, we'll be offering a four-hour Zoom online training course with yourself, Scott, with mental health awareness. There's been a lot of media coverage lately regarding the political unrest. You know, our thoughts and prayers are with the first responders as well as the protesters out there. Just hoping that everybody's keeping safe during this very difficult time. It would be remiss not to mention that. For those that aren't following us on social media yet, definitely get in touch with us via Instagram at Firehouse Training, on Twitter at Firehouse Train One and also our new TikTok account at Firehouse Training. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 26. I'm Scott Hewlett. The military approach is effective in achieving goals. Know your role and everyone else's. Know the rules and follow them without fail. Take direction from your superiors without question. Be methodical, habitual, and show discipline. However, there's also validity in everyone not responding to an inflexible structure and uniform communication off the fire ground. There is a time and place for empathy, understanding, and scaffolding. We work in a paramilitary service that is increasingly more corporate, and this requires mentors, instructors, leaders to be more multifaceted than ever before, and in that lies growth opportunities. My guest this episode is the founder of Trial by Fire, whose mission is to advance the fire service through strong leadership, accountability, and training. His course, Fire Service Mortar, The Critical Role of the Company Officer, and his book, No-Nonsense Leadership, A Realistic Approach for the Company Officer, Both offer his insights into strong leadership, accountability, team building, conflict management, and more. Here's my conversation with Jared Sergi. Hey, Jared. Hey, what's going on? It's going okay. Glad we finally made this happen. I'm sorry it's taken so many attempts. Yeah, no problem, man. 
Life gets busy. Yeah, it's been busy for everyone. All right, you want to get started? Yeah, man, let's do it. So you've done a number of podcasts already. You talked to James Gearing on Behind the Shield, and you did Fit to Fight Fire as well, I believe. Those were awesome. So I kind of want to let those stand as they are, and hopefully we can cover some new ground and people can check those out if they want to get to know some more about you. Why don't we start with uh, where you're originally from and tell me about your family and upbringing. I grew up in Southern California. That's where I'm originally from. And I grew up in Glendora primarily, uh, which is in LA County. And then I moved around a little bit when I was younger. I went to live in Colorado for a couple of years. I went through this episode in my, my young adult life where my parents went through a divorce and you know, I was just a rebellious little pain in the ass and didn't get along with my mom. And it was like, let's send this kid out to the country. <laughs> so I went to go with my uncle in Colorado for a couple of years, which was awesome. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. I got away from it all for a little bit and then came back and I felt like it was good for me. As far as my family, I got a big family. I have a lot of brothers. I have seven brothers. Most of them are half brothers, you know, with multiple marriages with my mom. But my upbringing was good. Just hanging out with my brothers, man, you know, riding bikes around the neighborhood, no cell phones, no social media. You know, we'd hop on a Nintendo every now and then, but for the most part, it was the last key kid kind of thing. We'd come home when it was getting dark and we were off running around the hills, catching lizards, getting into trouble. I separated from my brothers at a young age when the divorce happened. Uh, let's see, I was probably 12-ish. Dad went one way, my mom went the other way. I stayed with my mom. My brothers went with my dad, and they just vanished one day, and he moved away, didn't tell anybody. So there was a period for several years where I lost contact with all my brothers. That was a challenge for me as a young kid, and even still today, I don't have the relationship I had with my brothers, um, but we're trying to patch it up. Interesting. Did you reach out or have they reached out to you? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. So they left to Virginia when I was in California, right? They moved to Virginia. So I joined the Navy and I moved to Virginia. We eventually figured out where they went several years after they left. We landed on Virginia. So when I came out, I was like, hey, my brothers are in Virginia. Well, it turns out they had just moved back to California. It's like, God. Oh, jeez. But once I figured out where they were and that they had moved back at that point, I really tried to build a relationship with most of them. Some of them I don't have a relationship with at all, which is kind of sad. But the couple that I do talk to the most, you know, I could probably even do a better job, to be quite honest with you. But we're trying to rebuild those relationships for sure. Keeping in touch with family and friends that are close to you is hard enough, right? You put distance between people and it's even harder. It is. Yeah, right. Exactly. Were you athletic or hobby focused at a young age? I was. So as long as I can remember being a young boy, I was always into baseball. And I grew up watching the Dodgers play and uh, was way into baseball, played Little League really up until about high school. I couldn't even tell you why I stopped playing. But when I got into high school, I took an interest in track and field and cross country. So I dabbled in that for a little bit, became a distance runner. So I'd say I was fairly athletic coming up as a kid. I was always outside running around, but baseball, track and field, those were primarily the ones that I was focused on. As far as hobbies, I don't really remember any hobbies, you know, probably like any young kid collected baseball cards. And that was the big thing for me. And then just really just being outside and hanging out with my buddies. What was your school experience like? So my school experience was good. Uh, middle school, I can remember, was awesome. I made a lot of good friends. And that's when I was going back and forth between Colorado, like I mentioned. So, um, so that was interesting going from California to Colorado for middle school, going to a, a larger school, to a very small one in a small town in Colorado. The transition, honestly, was a little tough. 
just making friends and just being kind of the new kid on the block sort of thing. But as far as the experience with teachers and everything, it was good. I got into high school, it was a little bit different. I wasn't a great student. I never had shining stars on my report card. I was a C average, D plus student for most of my courses. But the experience itself, it was good. I kept a small circle of friends going through school. You know, I wasn't the popular kid. I wasn't super involved in the sports, although, again, I mentioned the track and field and cross country. But I think the most important thing to me was just kind of running with my small circle of friends and trying to stay out of trouble. But I certainly didn't focus in school like I should have been. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any particular guides and mentors along the way that were helping you when you were young? Yeah. So when I say when I was young, meaning middle school, high school, my grandfather was a big mentor to me. You know, I came from a broken home with my brothers and a nasty divorce. And, you know, all of a sudden my brothers were taken away from me and it was rough. So my grandfather was kind of my North Star during all that. You know, he's the one who would take me back and forth to Colorado. He's the, in fact, it was his idea. Hey, go move in with your uncle for a couple of years in Colorado. So he was there for me. He would give me the lectures and the stern talks you know, that forceful love whenever he needed to. So him and my uncle both, and actually him and two of my uncles come to mind. They were hard on me when they had to be. They listened when they needed to. But as far as someone to kind of keep me on track to make sure I really just didn't tumble out of control, I'd say it was a couple of my uncles and my grandfather. You said you didn't really necessarily put your motivation into school, but were you internally motivated for other things? Yeah, you know, it's strange. And I can tell you why. Maybe I just had no interest in doing good in school at that time. I didn't have aspirations to go to college. Uh, not that I didn't think it had value, but I, I guess it just wasn't on my radar. I don't know if it was because I knew I couldn't afford it. But when I was a sophomore in high school, someone approached me about the ROTC program, the junior ROTC. I had an Air Force junior ROTC at my high school. So once I got into that, honestly, I was around some people that were kind of a little bit like-minded, like they had a little bit of a sense of purpose. We talked about, you know, obviously it's ROTC, so you're talking about the military, but there's structure and there's discipline and camaraderie, maybe those things that I, you know, may have been looking for with my brothers leaving and filling in the gaps of the broken home. ROTC really attracted me, that structure. And then from there, it seems like I was internally motivated, right? Because they're able to define this sense of purpose for you, even if it's something just like making rank, right? Like you get promoted to senior airman or whatever the case may be. But there was certain things you had to do, right? So it was my first experience really having to buckle down and say, well, if I want this, then I really need to go after it. And if I don't, then other people around me will, and I'll be left behind. So I think that's where it kind of started, but really right around then, sophomore year of high school, ever since then, I feel like I've been internally motivated. I've always been one to go after what I want, and I'm going to try to do the best at it. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. As soon as I got out of high school and decided to start taking stuff that I wanted to take, I was crushing it, but I just couldn't get myself to do it when I was in high school. Right. What were your first jobs and work experience before military and fire service? So my first job was working at Del Taco, which I don't know if that sounds familiar. It's basically like a Taco Bell, a fast food type joint. That was my first gig in high school, just serving up tacos and burritos. And, you know, I was even screwing that up. I'd get in trouble and I have to do like the utility work which is the really just nasty work where before your regular shift, you would come in and scrub the drive through like all the fuel leaks in the oil. I'm out there with just soap and water, just with a scrub brush hitting the drive through scrubbing the pots and pans, like just the worst job in a fast food joint. Uh, that's what I would do. And it was always my own fault, right? Like I'd show up late or I would screw something up or, you know, you have these like caulking guns full of sour cream and guacamole. And it's like, 
damn it, Jared, only eight ounces in the burrito. I'm hooking <laughs> my buddies up, coming through the drive through <laughs> So it was always my own fault. Honestly, I think I was begrudging it the whole time. Not once I was, I was like, <laughs> it sounds bad. Not once was I ever like, you know what? I got this job. It stinks, but I'm going to do the best at it. I was like, this sucks. I can't wait till <laughs> this is over. Like, can I go back to the line just making burritos? <laughs> I don't think I had that first sense of, you know what, I'm just going to kind of embrace the suck type of thing and just, I don't care what it is, I'm going to be good at a thing until I left off to the military. I worked at a supermarket for a short time, stocking shelves. I started as an explorer, you know, getting exposed to the fire service and an ambulance and fire trucks and all that kind of stuff. What leaders were you exposed to in the military and what did you take from them that you still use today? So there's a bunch that stand out. I talk to people all the time about their first officer in the fire service, like, your first company officer, my first company officer, the first mentor, the first firefighter in your station, they play such a huge role in the way people, I think, will move throughout their career, right? Because it's like you show up first day as a rookie, like these guys are the fire department, right? They're your first impression, and they have such an opportunity to dig their talons into you and really develop you the right way. So in the military, I had that as well, and I was fortunate enough where I had a bunch I came on the ship, I was assigned to the USS Iwo Jima, which is an amphibious assault ship. We would say guys on the line, it was those types of leaders, those petty officers and those chiefs, Jimmy Harrison, John Bernier, Dwight Hill, a bunch of those guys, not just me, but everybody in that shop, in that division. I mean, they led by example. Captain Wally was another commanding officer of mine who retired as an admiral, and he actually ended up coming down to one of our recruit graduations and gave a keynote speech, which was pretty cool. But I had these folks from the top to the bottom. So, you know, that's what was great about my time in the military. And I think that sometimes the experiences people don't get in the fire department is like they may have these great chiefs or great executive staff and they see that and it's awesome. But maybe they don't see it on the line or in their station or in, and vice versa. For me in the military, I was able to see excellent leadership from the top to the bottom. And that was great because, you know, I got a snapshot of like, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how the line supports the executive staff, and this is how the executive staff supports the line. I was very lucky to be able to experience that. And if I had to pinpoint one thing, I mean, I learned a number of things in the military about work ethic, humility. The one thing that stands out to me, and it was reinforced by everybody on that ship from the top to the bottom, was to develop yourself in your current role. The military is very good about the be, no, do, right? I'll give specific examples. If I was a junior sailor and... I promote to petty officer. It's like a first-line supervisor in the Navy, right? You can get assigned to shop. You might have a couple guys or girls working for you. If you get promoted to E4, don't worry about getting promoted to E5. Just be an E4. Be a work center supervisor. Think about how to develop yourself, your crew. Be good in that role. Then move into the next one and do the same thing. Be good at being a division officer or be good at being a, a leading petty officer. I think that's extremely important to develop yourself in your current role. And to give a fire department example, it's like, you know, if somebody promotes to a lieutenant or a captain, whatever your first company officer rank is, I know some guys that make lieutenant and they already can't wait to put chief's bugles on. You know, they're just like, man, I got it. I'm going to keep on going. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's people that can do that. They have a goal on the horizon and go for it, man. That's awesome. But the problem is, is when they get that position, right? They land in that lieutenant or captain and they don't develop themselves. If you're going to get promoted and be a ladder lieutenant, then just worry about being a good ladder lieutenant. And when the time comes for the test for the next step, if you feel you're ready, then take it. 
And then when you get promoted to that position, like for us, lieutenants go to ladders, captains go to engines, right? So be a good ladder lieutenant. Not that you're going to master that role, right? But do everything you can. Participate in company training, lectures, classes, hands-on, experience, everything. And then when the next step's up, now I'm an engine cap. You know what? I'm going to do everything I can to develop myself as an engine captain. I want to know this truck from front to back. I want to know about hose, nozzles, hydraulics. And then just keep on going. Because I think if we don't do that, if I'm that guy who just gets promoted to lieutenant, and I just sit on my hands and I don't do anything. And I'm like, all right, 2023, I could take this captain's test. Oh, here we go. I took the captain's test. And I'm a captain for a couple of years. And then I become a chief. And I do nothing along the way to develop myself. I think what happens is, and this is just simply my opinion, is you end up with a lot of chiefs who are disconnected with the line. They don't have any idea of the conversations that are taking place. When someone brings them a topic or a project they want to work on, a lot of times they're stifled or the project is just shot full of holes simply because that person in particular, they didn't develop themselves in that role. This stuff is simply foreign to them and they don't want to feel insecure about it. So they just shut it down and say no. And these things just die in an in-basket somewhere. And again, I'm not trying to you know, crush anyone's goals of rapidly rising up the ladder. There's people that do it all the time and they do an outstanding job. But I think the ones that are good at it are the ones who take the time to really, really dive into that role, learn everything they can about it before they go to the next one. I think that's extremely important. It's a missed opportunity. It's your only chance to spend some time doing that thing. Right, exactly. What was your first exposure to the fire service? I have a grandfather. He retired from Los Angeles County. He was an engine captain there. So, you know, I was exposed to that as a young kid. I'd hear stories about the firehouse and everything. But I don't think I took an interest in the fire service until you know, around middle of high school. Like when I got into that Explorer program, I think I had a buddy that was talking about it and introduced me to it. And so off I went. I joined an Explorer post. And then I started to actually do ride-alongs. I would ride along in the ambulance and the fire trucks, and I would stay in the station I was like, man, this is great. This is something I want to be a part of. And I wouldn't have gone right into the fire service right after high school. But where I grew up in California, a lot of the smaller departments, unless you went to like San Diego, Los Angeles, a lot of the larger ones, you had to have your paramedic certificate before they'd even really look at your application. So, you know, Del Taco just wasn't paying the bills and I couldn't afford to go to college with that. And, you know, I was a knucklehead all through school. So my grades were no help. So that's why I actually went to the military. Like, well, I heard all these stories about money for college. I was already in ROTC. So, you know, the military, you know, not that it wasn't an option, but I really wasn't thinking about it a whole lot. But I'm like, well, the time is now. I got to make a move. So off I went to the military. But my first exposure to the fire service was definitely, at least the most exposure was when I was starting in the Explorer Post in Hesperia, California. Was the military experience harder than you expected? Did it resonate with you and you were all in? Did you love it? How did that go for you? So, you know, looking back at it now, I absolutely loved it. And my time there was well spent. I had an absolutely amazing time. I was exposed to so many cool things and so many great people that at that time, I don't think I really appreciated. I was just telling the story of the firehouse the other day. Like when I went to boot camp, I was a total idiot. I mean, I should have known a little bit, you know, being an ROTC and all that, but I was like the total culture shock getting off the airplane, you know, picking us up on the bus, just screaming at us. I was just like, whoa, like, I can't believe this. Like the first two weeks at boot camp was just like in dock. So it's like paperwork, shots, physicals. And you wake up at Navy boot camp. We woke up at four in the morning and you went to bed at 10. So you're just constantly just tired and dragging ass, like falling asleep, marching. You can't talk to anybody. I mean, just constantly getting screamed at. I'm like, this is the worst experience of my life. I was genuinely that kid like, 
what the hell did you just do? It's not like I'm like, you know what? I'm good here. I'm going to go back. Like they got me for four years. Yeah. They own me. <laughs> yeah. You're not going anywhere, kid. So it was tough for me, man. So I mean, that was a huge culture shock. Lucky for me when I graduated boot camp and I went off to a school, you know, it relaxes a little bit. So off you go to a school, you're still not allowed to wear civilian clothes until you get qualified in your watch stations and everything like that. I think I was making 325 bucks every two weeks. Who even knows what I was spent that on because I was getting fed. I had a place to sleep and all that. But I had some friends in a school that I ended up getting stationed with. Like five or six of us went to the same ship. So that was cool. I think that really helped me because in A school, I'm filling out my, uh, they call it a dream sheet. You get to pick three home port bases that you would request and then an overseas spot. So for number one, I put San Diego because I'm like, man, that's right by home. I'm going to hang out with my boys on the weekend. <laughs> had it all figured out, you know. So number one, San Diego. Number two, San Diego. Number three, San Diego. <laughs> so I know that, I know that detailer probably got that and was like, who the hell does this guy think he is? <laughs> is he a smart ass? <laughs> yeah. So I get my orders, right? And it says, you're going to Pascagoula, Mississippi <laughs> on a ship. And I'm like, Pascagoula? Like, where the hell is that? I knew they built ships down there. So I was going to a new ship, but the ship wasn't commissioned yet. So I'm like, well, it's got to get home ported somewhere after that, right? Maybe it's going to go to San Diego. I'm reading down my orders and like instructors helping me read them. And I could see home port, Norfolk, Virginia. I'm like, Virginia, my life is over. I'm being sent away from California, 3,000 miles away from my friends and family. Like, how am I going to make this? I think I fell into like a state of depression for like a week, you know, just being a pouty cry baby, you know, but there was no stopping it, right? Like, hey, buddy, you're on the plane this day. Off you go. And I landed in Norfolk and got my room. And again, almost that same feeling in boot camp where I'm like, well, what the hell have I done? Now I'm in Norfolk, Virginia, 3,000 miles away from home. No family in the area. Nobody's around. There I go, figuring it all out on my own. Again, luckily with a few buddies of mine. But it was an experience. It definitely wasn't what I expected. I don't know if I just was the kid who believed all the commercials. But once I kind of landed on my feet out there and met some people in my command and got a little bit of a daily routine, it really wasn't too bad at all. And I look back on my time in the military and what an experience. I got to go to damage control school. I got to be an instructor on the ship and develop relationships and learn about things like work ethic, leadership, accountability, and training. And I got the opportunity to go be a rescue swimmer. So I went to a rescue swimmer school. And it was just, just this super cool stuff that at the time, it was like, yeah, it was fun. But you know, I didn't really appreciate it. I was ready to hang my hat up with the Navy and leave. Not because I hated it, but just because you know, I was ready to move on. I still had the fire service in my sights. But yeah, the Navy was an outstanding experience for me. And I think it shaped a lot of my behaviors and my attitude and a lot of just simply the way I do things in the fire department now, uh, even in the firehouse. Do you think that's the overarching benefit to the armed forces is that it gets you out of your own way? You know, you could pick a goal or a habit and try and do it, but to do it that disciplined for that long a period of time where it becomes who you are is so hard to do. But the military doesn't give you a choice. Like, you have to do it. Yeah. I had people in the military that used to tell me all the time, like, step up or step out. You know, they demanded leadership. You know, they demanded people to develop themselves. And if they didn't, and that's the one thing I liked about the military, I don't know if it's still the same way, but you were held accountable. There was no, well, we'll just hide this guy or we'll put him at one of those slow stations where nobody will see him. No, if, if you didn't do your job and you didn't do what you were supposed to and other people had to carry your burden, then you were held accountable. You know, the good thing about the military is if you were willing to give a little, the military would give a lot. 
it offered support, it offered direction, and offered mentorship just because they demanded more from their people because they had to. We'll jump ahead just a little bit, but is that your biggest frustration with the fire service? That when you see those kind of moves where people are given a little bit too much leeway or choice, then it's more often people choose comfort than maybe the right thing? Yeah. And I don't know if it's one of my bigger frustrations, but it's definitely frustrating to see that lack of accountability at times. Because what classically happens is Scott could be a rock star, and then I have another guy who's a total dud, and it's like, you make one wrong move, man. It's like, boom, you're in the crosshairs, right? Because it's easy. Because likely people know that you're going to take a little bit better and you're self-motivated. Then you go to a firefighter dud and they do it. It's easy, you know, to just be like, oh, well, that's just Jared, you know, like that's just him. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Like I screw up. I expect some accountability. Where's the accountability here? And I think if that accountability doesn't exist where, you know, if someone screws up, they don't do what they're supposed to and they're not in trouble or they're not held accountable, it creates a culture of apathy. We had a wave of things happen in our department, and we've gotten past it all, but we had some people making some just stupid-ass mistakes. Like They were doing things on and off duty that was just really not a good thing for the fire department. And for a while there, some of our leadership was just like, well, we, you know, we're just kind of turn the other way. We don't want to deal with this. You know, what kind of message does that send? I can come in and it's like, hey, Serge, man, you know, your uniform looks terrible. It's like, well, whatever. I mean, if Joe Blow down the street can get away with this, then what the hell are you getting on me for about the little things? So it just sends that message and it creates that culture of apathy if you don't hold folks accountable. And people see it, right? They know the leadership of any organization should know that the people on the line, in the case of a fire department, they see when you're not holding folks accountable. And I think they want to see you make moves. In fact, I think the majority of people in a fire department expect to be held accountable if they screw up. I think if they don't, they're like, whew, dodge that bullet. But that's how I am, right? If I go out and make a mistake, I fully expect when I pull back into that bay, my chief's going to be like, hey, Jared, I got to talk to you about some stuff. Yes, sir, man, I screwed that up. Like, I want that accountability. Yeah, I've heard it many times put, well, I've been doing this for five years and no one's ever said anything to me, so why change it? Right, exactly. I've had guys say that to me too, you know, good different stations. Well, well, the last captain said I could do this, you know, or the last chief said I could do that. I'm like, buddy, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not that last chief or that last captain, but I'm here now and this is what I expect. And anything like that, I always sound like, look, I don't expect you to like it, but I do expect you to do it. You know, you don't have to like it. What was your recruit and rookie experience at Norfolk like? Uh, it was awesome, man. I had a great fire academy. I came in right out of the Navy. I say right out. I was out for four or five months, something like that, hopped right into a fire academy. And it was great. So at the time, our academy was about seven months long. We're a fire-based EMS. So we get our fire training and we go through our EMT training and we graduate. But my recruit training was good. I had really good instructors. I had credible instructors. I remember, and even some of them are still around now, these were guys that came in from operations that had good reputations. They were known for doing things in the fire department. They were active in teaching and doing company training. So I had these folks as my instructors. So I always felt like I had a good bunch, like we were going to be taking care of his recruits. So as far as a recruit experience, it was great. I left there feeling completely comfortable. We definitely had the paramilitary approach in our fire academy. You know, attention, marching, respectful when speaking, yes sir, no sir, the whole nine yards. That was there. So that part was pretty easy for me coming out of the military. That didn't bother me one bit. But, you know, other people that weren't used to that type of structure were like, what in the hell? I graduated rookie school, and then I went off to probation. And same thing. I landed in a station where the captain was just, I mean, the guy was a rock star, man. I mean, he was just so excited at work every day, man. He was fired up, great attitude. 
just an awesome dude. So I had great company officers. The firefighters that were there in that station were solid, man. They taught me things. You know, if they see me walking around, like, hey, Jared, man, come over the truck. Let me show you something. Or let's go out and do this. And my officers were doing the same thing. They never let me sit idle. I was always doing something. They were always teaching me something, driving me around, showing me buildings. So, you know, that first year for me in the fire department was outstanding. It was a busy year. I actually went to a slower station, but the crew there really helped fill the downtime. And then I was fortunate enough. I actually caught quite a few fires that year as a rookie, had some good medical calls. So when it was time for me to go, I was able to look back on my probationary year. Like, you know, these guys really looked out for me and they took care of me as a rookie. And I still see some of those people now. And I feel like we'll always have that connection. They looked out for me and I'll do whatever I can to always look out for them. I don't care whether they're a firefighter or up to the chief. I'll do whatever I can for them. Um, but it was really, really good. I had an awesome time on probation. It was, it was a blast. Did you have any calls early on that were real teaching moments? I mean, they all are. But I mean, does anything stand out that still sticks with you? It does. So right when I either just got off probation or I was on probation, but it doesn't matter. I was a young firefighter. Norbrook's got a lot of old three, four-story walk-ups, old ordinary construction, you know, rail car apartments, things like that. So I go to this fire, and it ended up being a mayday. And so it was my first experience with that, obviously. So just some particulars. So it started in a basement, and from what I remember, I don't even know how it happened, but a gas line sheared, large gas pipe just burning the block off under this house. And when we arrived on the engine, I was assigned to the engine company, so a lady came down from the third floor, and she's like, hey, my room's on fire. Her apartment was full of smoke, you know, so civilian where there's smoke, there's fire. That's where she thought it was. So we took our line up to the third floor, and I was like, hey, there's no fire here. I was like right on my lieutenant's coattails the whole time, just following them around like a row of baby ducks, man. I'm just right behind them. And all of a sudden, it got like really hot. The smoke started getting thicker. I could hear kind of the panic and the radio chatter, and I'm like, man, this is getting crazy, right? And... I don't know exactly how it happened. Maydays are always just so crazy, right? A captain on another engine company that was having some kind of out-of-air emergency. We were up on the third floor already. Command gave us the order to look for this captain, who was also uh, on the third floor with a line. So we brought in a secondary line coming up behind them. We're looking around for him. We're looking around for him. We can't find him. Well, it turned out he got past us somehow. We just didn't see him. But he made it out and didn't communicate it on the radio. So we're up here looking for him. It's getting hot. It's getting hot. I'm like, holy cow. So it got to the point where it was getting really bad. It was almost unbearable with heat. And I can remember my lieutenant taking me and just about physically placing me at the top of the stairs onto the third floor. And he looked right at me and he said, you don't go anywhere. And I said, you got it, sir. I stood there. I was a little freaked out because I was like, man, I'm by myself at this point. But I know he knows where I'm at, right? He put me at the top of the stairs. It's kind of an oriented spot. I could shimmy on out of here if I needed to. So he's crawling around. And then we get separated and he can't find me. I can't find him. I'm crawling around looking for him. I'm like, oh man, this is not good. I do the best thing I know. I go back to the stairs, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Lieutenant, he's going to make his way back here. I'll just wait for him. And it got to the point where I just physically couldn't stay there anymore. I went down to like the half landing and I can remember breaking out a window, which what the hell did I know at that point? So I'm hanging up and I'm like pulling myself up over the window and I look down. I'm like, you know what? If I have to leave, I'll probably break my lower legs, but I'm going to live. And then all of a sudden, somebody else comes up to me. It's actually one of the guys that I was stationed with at seven as a rookie. He was just filling in on another engine. And he comes and grabs me, and he's like, who is this? And I said, this is Sergi. And he's like, what in the hell are you doing in here? 
And I said, I'm waiting for the lieutenant. I can't leave. And he looks at me. He's like, oh, you're leaving. I'm like, no, no, I'm waiting for the lieutenant. I can't leave him. And he goes, you're leaving. Let's go. I'm like, okay. I listened to him. You know, he's been around a while. So as we go down the stairs, the first floor collapses into the basement. Lucky for us, the stairs were finished. The bottom of the stairs were right at the front door on the first floor. And the floor collapsed behind the stairs. So you didn't have to come down and crawl around on the first floor and then out the front door. But I came out and I can remember looking up at the building like, holy crap. We were just in there, just this black boiling smoke that's coming out of the third floor, starting to light off in some places. And then all of a sudden I could see a light in the window and it's my lieutenant. He made his way to a bathroom. He busted the window out. They get ground ladders up and he come bailing out the window. So for me as a newer probationary guy, just a young firefighter, I was like, holy crap. So that was probably within like the first 25 minutes of the fire, right? We were probably on scene for like another six hours. But when we went back to the station, I was just on overload of everything that just happened to me. It was unlike any of the fires I had been to before. Here's a mayday, getting lost and separated from my lieutenant, him bailing out the window, constant radio chatter and confusion. So it was a lot for me to absorb as a new firefighter, but I don't know if glad is the right way to put it. Like I'm glad I had that experience, but it's definitely something that, you know, if I'm ever there again, I could draw on that. But that was definitely like a, whoa, (laughs) this fire department thing's real. Whether you thought about it at that time or not, it really speaks to who you are or who other people are that would be in the same situation and the next day say, yeah, this is for me, I'm in. It seems normal to make that decision, but it's not normal. Right. Yeah. You know, because I can remember sitting up at the top of those stairs and when that firefighter came to grab me, thank goodness he did. In my head, I'm like, well, I could leave, you know, but what will people think of me? If I come out by myself and the lieutenant's up there, like, oh my gosh, you left your lieutenant. And so for about a week, I really struggled with that. Like, man, I was getting ready to leave him. I did leave him. Ultimately, the guy found me and we left the building. I was like, holy crap, man. I was just beating myself up. But my lieutenant, you know, he was good. He reassured me. He's like, no, I told you to sit here. You did the right thing. And things like that become chaotic. But yeah, it was a hell of an experience. That's for sure. I don't think there is anything I've heard describe how powerful the fear of what people think of you in a department is you're in that situation, you're burning up and you're still thinking that outcome is worse. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I know. That's so screwed up to think, isn't it? Like if I'm going to come out of this building, they'd be like, oh, nice. Where's the loo, man? You left them? No way, man. Not me. I'm not doing that. <laughs> How and when did you get involved with instructing? So everybody in the Navy gets shipboard firefighting, very basic education on it. When they go to their ship, it's the damage controlmen on the ship that are responsible for the continual training and education on shipboard firefighting. So at an early age, 19 years old, I was teaching firefighting and running drills. So I was kind of thrust into it at a very early age. Even in my A school, you know, you learn that your job when you leave here and go to your ship, like you will be an instructor. That is part of being a damage controlman and a lot of other jobs too, I'm sure. But for us, that's what we did. We taught ship's crew firefighting. I liked teaching people. I liked showing people things and seeing them connect to these ideas. And then when I was in the fire department, of course, here I am, a new firefighter. I do a whole lot of teaching. I'm the student. I get some time under my belt, and now I go to my training division, and I get an opportunity to teach our EMT intermediate class, which was awesome. I'm like a super closet paramedic nerd. <laughs> so for me to be able to do that was really cool. I'm in the instructor role again, and it was great. And then I just stuck around after that. And I decided I wanted to stay in the train division for a couple of years and run some recruit academies. And just that's what I wanted my folks to be, not only for recruits, but 
you know, developing some training stuff for the department. And I really, really enjoyed it. Were you surprised at the difference in instructors that you might have seen in the fire service compared to the military? Sometimes, yes, because I was so used to that development piece. I always had people in my corner on the ship teaching. So like my leading petty officers, my chiefs, they were always very supportive. They expected me to be an instructor. Like that's what you do. So going into the fire department, when I'm in the training center and instructors would come in, and I don't consider myself one of the best instructors, but I had to grapple with my approach. We're bringing people into a training center, whether there's staff there or we're bringing them in for classes to be these instructors, but they don't have any teaching experience. And I'm not a formal teacher, but it's like, you're in operations, come on in, buddy. You're in the training center and have at it. You're running this recruit academy. So if those folks are lucky enough to have somebody in their corner, like I did in the military, like constantly coach me, direct me, this is how you talk to people, this is how you capture a crowd, this is how you do these outlines, yada, 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 then that's good. But I think sometimes we fail our staff in the training division because we bring these people who aren't instructors, not that they don't have stuff to offer, but they're just not instructors, if that makes sense. So put them in there and it's like, all right, bro, you got it. And they struggle with it. And it's not because they're not good firefighters or good people. It's just they're not instructors. And it's like, what have we done to develop them before we just, boom, you know, here you go. Yeah, it makes me think of a game of shinny hockey. I didn't play hockey until I got into house league in the department for a brief amount of time. And I just went over after the game to one of the guys that was obviously very good and said, hey, can you show me a few things about skating? And he's like, dude, I don't know. I just, I just do it. Right. The skills are the skills. Anybody can show a skill, but those soft skills separate people. Right, absolutely. How did you get to the coordination level in building departmental and regional programs? So my first experience with that was, people are going to love this part right here. So there was a regional rollout of the slicer stuff, right? So when all that transitional attack conversation started taking place, our region, so Norfolk, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach, I was part of the Hampton Roads Training Officer Group. And so one of the first things I had to do was develop a fire dynamics program. I didn't develop the whole thing. I think I had like the coordinated ventilation and maybe the fire behavior stuff. And a couple of guys from another city had another thing. So we had to take each one of our topics and pile it into one big presentation for a regional rollout, right? So we create this program. Norfolk watches it. Chesapeake watches it. Virginia Beach watches it. We create our own internal train the trainers and we teach everybody in the fire department this stuff. Now, people have their thoughts, slicers, I'm not even going to get into that conversation, but just being able to take a topic, any topic, and literally come to a table and say, all right, well, we got to talk about this, this, or that. Like, what's important to our region? How do we operate? Do you run with us? It was just big time coordination when it came to developing a regional training program that was easily digestible. People understood, they were able to see the value in it. It was a cool experience. You know, I made some mistakes during that. I think I did some good things as well, both myself and the people in our training division. But it was interesting trying to coordinate a regional training program like that. Just ideas and opinions and attitudes about certain things. It was interesting. Well, trying to come to some sort of agreement to roll out for the department between stations or platoons would be hard enough. I can't imagine trying to get five departments to agree. Was it really brutal or were you surprised at how well everyone dialogued and came to compromises? No, I was actually surprised how good it was. So when we all got our material, there was one chief that was kind of heading everything up and everything went to him and he would read it and he would get back to us. But I would say for the most part, we agreed on a lot of stuff and it was really, really good. And I think what helped is the types of people that were in that room. They were people who cared about the fire service. They were people that were in their training divisions that wanted to be in their training division. So it was like, 
I'm all in. I'm here to create a good program, not, oh, Chief sent me down here to this meeting, and I guess I'll do what I can. Like, they all had some skin in the game. So it was really good as far as the cooperation and everything else like that. So it was a cool experience for me to be able to work on some stuff like that. That was the biggest regional training program that we did was just this large body of how do we take all this fire dynamics research and present it to the region and our own departments as well. Have you found that all training divisions are understaffed and overwhelmed? That's a good question. Yes and no. I would say yes. And I only could see my little corner of the fire service over here in Hampton Roads. But I would say yes. I would say yes, they're understaffed. We have close to 500 people in our department. Then we have just a few. In fact, we only really have one that runs quarterly training for our department. The rest are involved with the fire academies and the other involved with like continuing education for EMS. So I would say yes, they're understaffed. You know, they're like a one-legged man and ass-kicking contest, some of those instructors <laughs> in there. So yes, they need more. The flip side of that is it depends on the department's support of the train division. And what I mean by that is, yes, you can have a train division and maybe they're understaffed, but the people in operations can help support the training division, right? It doesn't have to be the train division that comes up with this quarterly idea. It doesn't have to be the train division that comes up with this in-service idea. It could be you, right? Now you could approach your train division, you don't blindside them and say, you're just going to do your own thing, but support your training center. We know they're understaffed a lot of times. We know they're getting pulled in a bunch of different directions. And yes, they're on a 40-hour work week, but let's be honest, most people in the train division, if they give a damn, they're doing a lot more than 40 hours a week because it's a lot of work if you haven't done that. So if a department supports their train division, I would say no, that they're not understaffed. They have exactly who they need in there to kind of drive ideas and support people on the line. You know, I would love to see fire departments support their train divisions like that. I try to do that myself. You know, I'll come up with an in-service idea. I'll run it by the training chiefs like, hey, man, what do you think? Is this good? Like, I got some guys that want to do it. I've identified instructors on each shift. Like, we'll do all the heavy lifting. We just need you to give us the green light and support it. So I know that was a, a very yes and no answer. The bottom line is most are understaffed. And if they are, and you know your training department is understaffed, support them. Right? If you're on the line, support your training division. Help out, get involved, see if you can do anything to kind of take some stuff off their plate or off their shoulders. And that would be huge. And it gets you involved in your fire department. Yeah. Do you think that collaboration structure is even more beneficial than trying to keep the training division a gated community and they do everything in-house and no one else has a say? Absolutely. One of the things I can remember doing when I was done with the intermediate class, I moved to the training academy, the fire academies. And at the time, I don't know if it was my first or second academy, we didn't have like a quarterly training officer. I was wearing two different hats. I was the fire academy coordinator and I was the quarterly training or department in service or whatever the title even is. I don't even remember. But rolling out training programs to the department. So having to do that, I can remember going out and looking for that collaboration. I can remember taking a trip like, you know what, I'm just going to hop in the car. I'm going to drive it to a bunch of the fire stations. And I'm just going to ask what people want, you know, and say, hey, what are you looking for from your train division? Is there anything you guys are interested in doing? Is there anything you want to see? Is there anything that you're willing to help with? And so you ask all these people, and truthfully, you really get a very small percentage of people who are going to be like, yeah, I'll do it. Because a lot of times, they're not doing it for any extra compensation or pay. Or And if they ask that question, if they're like, well, am I going to get put on overtime for that? I could pretty much likely count that person out. Not all of them, but most of them. So I wanted people that wanted to do things for their fire department. I asked a lot of questions. What do you guys want to see? What do you want to see us do? And I try to use some of that feedback because I wanted to encourage that collaboration and let people know like, hey, kind of one team, one fight here. It doesn't always have to be driven from the train division. When did you decide to promote 
So for us, you could take the lieutenant's test. Well, at the time, you could take it at four years, and then they recently changed it to six, I guess, several years back. When it came time for me to be ready to take the promotional exam, I was kind of on the fence about it. And I was the first time I took it, I was definitely one of those guys like, well, I'll just take it to see what this whole thing is. So I took it. I didn't study for it. I was Truthfully, I was happy with where I was with my assignment. I didn't want to leave. I loved the guys. I loved my captain. I was just having a ball. And I knew if I got promoted, then I would have to leave. So I didn't really pour a lot of time into studying for the test. And honestly, I think if I would have got promoted that time, I think it would have been too early for me. And I know it was only a few years later that I got promoted, but I'm actually kind of glad I didn't get promoted that first round because I felt like when I was up for it again, I was taking it a little bit more seriously. Like, you know what? I'm ready for it. The captain I had, the dude was awesome, totally prepared us to step into his role. I felt comfortable, if that's the best word, like I'm ready. Again, master of nothing. Not that I'm like, you know what? I'm a damn good firefighter. I got this thing down. Boom. Lieutenant's for me. No, it wasn't that. It was like, you know what? I feel comfortable as a firefighter. I've had some good experiences. I've done a lot of training. I've been involved in things. I had great officers and mentors, and they're teaching me some things. Now, you know what? I want to go do that for somebody else. I want to have my own crew. I want to have my own station. I want to keep going with this mentorship thing. So that's when I really decided to buckle down and take the next test seriously. And then I got promoted. So I made lieutenant end of 2012, beginning in 2013. So I was in the department seven, eight years close to that when I made lieutenant. I, I took the second time much more seriously. And the driving force behind that was not my first captain. My first captain was awesome. But the one that I worked for the majority of the time, I tell people all the time, I owe the bugles on my collar to that guy. I mean, he was just a great, great engine captain, great leader, great mentor, great friend. The dude's just awesome. So what he did for us, he built that culture in our station and amongst our crew. And again, like I said, I got to a point where I'm like, I want to do this for somebody else. I want to create this reputation. I want to create this culture. And I want to build like these soldiers of good that will go around and just do awesome things for our fire department. Did you have any kind of officer development program going on or was it left up to being lucky enough to be who you were around? Yeah. So at the time we did not, there's nothing. Um, there was no formal officer development. And in fact, now, you know, I have no problem saying it. We do not expect anything from our officers. What I mean by that is no required courses. We do now, we have an officer development program. It's 12 courses over 12 weeks. They have to take that. So there's that. And it's better than nothing. But other than that, it's just time. You just wait your time in the seat. If you got those officer development courses, or we call them our professional development academy, you take the test and off you go, which I struggle with that because, you know, I tell people all the time, especially company officers, they're walking, talking, living, breathing officer development programs. The academies that we do and the internal programs, I'm an advocate for them. I think they're good, but those are products. They're something that we, we strip off the shelf and we say, oh, we're rolling this out and here's your 12-week program and boom. And if that's all anybody ever gets, they just get the product. They don't get the years before. They don't get the process. They don't get the development. They don't get the mentoring and the coaching, everything else. So what happens is we have people that land these positions of leadership that have done nothing for themselves. One, because our department doesn't require them to do anything for themselves other than time and check that box with their officer development. So they land in the front seat. And then the sad reality is, is now that person's in that position, that firehouse. And what do you think they're going to do for the people that work with them? Nothing. They're not going to do anything. They couldn't lead themselves. What makes you think they're going to be able to lead other people? And it's just this vicious, unprofessional cycle that we fall into. So I absolutely wish that we asked a little more. Can I've had people like, oh, Jared, man, you just want me to go to these classes. At the end, it's just a piece of paper. They're absolutely correct. It is just a piece of paper. But for me, if I'm looking at a candidate and I see somebody who's gone and taken these conferences, 
They've gone and taken these classes. They're active in their fire department. They do all these things. It shows me initiative. It shows me that they're self-starters. It shows me that they could lead themselves. It shows me that they care about their professional development. That way, when I promote them or when the department promotes them, they're going to do that for their people, right? I can count on that person to hold their folks accountable. I can count on them to train them. I can count on them to develop them professionally. I think the leadership has got to pay very close attention to who they put in these positions, because if we put people in these positions who have done nothing, then they're going to feel the ripple effect for years to come. The paramedic service in my region, they have preceptors. I'm not sure if you guys have that same structure. So if you want to become an advanced care medic, you're slotted with a assigned preceptor. So they've obviously been chosen or qualified to be that mentor. Do you guys have something similar? And do you think the fire service would benefit from that as opposed to the luck of the draw who your officer might be? We have something similar to that on the paramedic side called field training instructors. And they go out and they ride with these specific people. I don't know if I like it or dislike it, but I lean more towards I don't like formal mentorship programs. If somebody wants to have a mentor, it's got to be a little bit organic. I should be able to say, all right, Jared, what do you want to be in five years or 10 years? Well, look, I like that guy over there. That's the version of myself in five years. I want that. Can I go work for that officer? And it's simply not that easy when it comes to filling vacancies and stuff. But A formal mentorship program, I don't think always works because so many variables, but sometimes it depends on who's driving the mentorship program. If you have somebody who may not be very good with themselves, here they are picking like-minded people. Are these guys truly mentors? Are they trying to pad a resume? Are they trying to work for the next promotion? And they have this title, but they're not doing anything with it. I think people will naturally follow their own mentors. And I think sometimes mentorship will take care of itself. We just need people to step up and be one. If most people just stepped up, did what they were supposed to, we put people in the right positions when they promote and fire chiefs put people in positions that will develop people professionally and make good decisions and involved in their fire departments and develop themselves. Well, guess what? I don't have to create this big fancy mentorship program. I just promote the right people and I got mentors riding on every fire truck in my department. I think if we approach it from a place like that, we'd be a lot better off than trying to scramble and figure out a formal mentorship program. Just do the right thing and mentorship will become organic. What prompted the Trial by Fire project? Initially started probably like a lot of things, probably like out of frustration. Not that I was frustrated with my department. I'm not saying that. I love my fire department. But just stuff that I would see around the fire service, things that were going on, conversations were happening about everything I talk about, right? The role of the company officer and professional development and training. It's like, man, this needs to be a priority. People need to be talking about this. So I would just put my thoughts and opinions out there and initially start on social media. And one of my buddies is like, look, man, why don't you create something formal where you can get an audience? like, I don't know, man, that's not me. I don't know if I want to do that. He's like, no, just do it. Like you have a message, try it. So I said, all right. So I took to social media, I created a trial by fire. And then from there, I really started to focus on talking about leadership at the company level and being a good firefighter. And then that developed into, well, I want to take this message out of the region. I want to create a program. And I created company officer leadership. And then I've just been going around talking about it ever since. How has the balance of positive and negative feedback been? It's been good. Initially, when I started out, it was negative and sometimes even internal to my own department. I think that's normal for anybody. You know, you kind of step outside that comfort zone and step outside the norm and immediately people are lazing you with a target. Like, what are you doing? You can't go out there and say those things. People aren't going to listen. Who the hell are you to talk? I went through these moments of like self-doubt. Are these people right? Or should I continue to talk about it? But I got to a point where I just didn't care anymore. And I said, you know what? I am no pioneer in leadership. I don't know everything. 
I'm not a 30 year chief that's going around talking about my experiences. Like if you expect to get that from me, you're going to be let down. I just want to talk to people about my experience, 18, 19 years old, being thrust into the military, talking about things like unit cohesion and leadership and teamwork and everything. Like ever since I've been 18, I've been a part of a team. And so in the fire department, it's very similar. So I just felt like I really wanted to go out and have that conversation with people. This is how important this company officer leadership is. I want to do for other people what was done for me. And I want people to see the value in giving a damn about folks and coaching them and really looking out for them and taking care of them the right way. So once I had my sights set on where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to help other people, I could care less about some of the negative feedback. I would listen to the constructive feedback, of course, right? I wouldn't just be like, these guys are talking out their ass. I don't know what they're talking about. You know what? Maybe some of this is right. I would have to change my approach with things. And, you know, even in my own department, like there's times, and I had to learn the hard way sometimes, like if I'm passionate about something, I want to change something. I have this project. I just can't go in and just punch people in the face. I have to go in there and explain things and take a step back and realize people absorb things different ways. And I've definitely had lessons learned along the way. And I've definitely had some of that feedback that was slightly negative kind of helped me be reflective at times. Patience intact or everything. Oh, yes. Yeah. So how did you get involved with traveling and speaking at conferences and teaching at other departments? Have you found that saying you're never a prophet in your own land? I actually didn't have that experience. So when I first created the program, I was like, you know, I have this idea for a class. I heard about guys going around to conferences and teaching. And I said, well, let me start that here. So I created the program and I started to do it regionally and I actually had a lot of good support. I didn't have the old, well, I work with Jared, what the hell's that guy know? Or you know, I'm not going to go drive over to see him. I work with that knucklehead all the time, you know. So I had a lot of support from the people in my department, and I had a lot of support from people in other departments around me. I was very lucky in that sense. In fact, when I rolled out my first program, I could remember having the conversation with the class with maybe like 20 people, and I knew most of them. I'm like, look, guys, I know I shouldn't probably say this as an instructor, but I'm going to say it. This is the first time I'm rolling out this program. This could go four hours or it could go eight hours. I plan for a full day, but I would just really love your guys' feedback. Tell me what you think. Tell me if it's terrible. Tell me what you like. And man, the people in that class were awesome. They gave me great feedback. They said, do this, switch this, change this. Have you thought about that? I mean, it was killer. So I had a lot of support when I first started doing it locally. Now, I'm sure there were critics, and I certainly had some when I would hear stuff. But again, I was at that point where I just didn't really care. Just kind of let it roll off my back. Once I kind of had a program dialed in, you know, I'd get these emails or I'd follow the websites for calls for presentations and I would just drop them in there and and all of a sudden I was just getting picked up and off I went. And so it started with the small conferences and then I can remember one guy came up to me at the conference. I can't remember where it was. And he says, can you come to my department and teach? I would love for you to bring this program to my department. I'm like, uh, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. So then I get back home, like, well, how the hell does this work? <laughs> I can remember calling Jim Crawford. He's a fire chief now in South Carolina, but he retired from Pittsburgh. And he really helped me early on with trying to find my way as far as how does this work? How do I go teach at other departments? Like, this is very new territory for me. So he explained it to me, things to do, things to consider. And off I went. I started going out to departments and word travels that, hey, there's this guy out doing this company officer leadership stuff. And I, I wanted it to be a very myopic approach to leadership. I didn't want it to be, a, well, let's just talk about good leadership in general. No, I wanted to have the conversation about leadership at the company level and how that really impacts the organization as a whole. Give my thoughts. I'm not up there saying you guys need to do this or change this. I'm just a guy with an opinion like anybody else. And I'm uh, just sharing my experiences and suggestions and advice and everything else. Yeah, part of the dialogue. Yep, exactly. 
what benefits have you gained from traveling and talking to multiple departments and hearing their thoughts and opinions? Have you seen a unity across the service, um, some distinct differences? Yes, it's been great. To give it one word, I think the biggest benefit for me traveling is perspective. Being able to see what other departments do and not being so caught up in my own little corner of the fire service. I tell my folks all the time in my station that they need to go out and they need to just work on their professional development. But what I tell them specifically is get outside of Norfolk. Go listen to somebody else. If you think you're going to come to work every day and just get whatever you need from me, you're wrong. (laughs) So go out and listen to other people. Go listen to instructors from big departments, small departments, volunteer, career, different experiences. Just listen to these folks, listen to everything and cherry pick what you like and discard what you don't. I think that makes them such a well-rounded firefighter. And then as an organization, you know, as a fire department, like I go around, I travel, I see things like that works. This doesn't. A fire department has approached this problem a, a particular way. And I'm able to come back and try to share those things with my own department, which could be tough at times, right? Because we have folks that don't do any of that. So their fire services is 62 square miles and it doesn't go anywhere else. But that has been great. Just the perspective and realizing that, you know what? We're not the only ones doing this or we're not the only ones dealing with this problem. Other people have done this or are dealing with it or are developing a policy. It's just so many little rabbit holes you can go down into as far as the benefits of getting out there and traveling and exposing yourself to different people and departments and aims, stuff like this too. Just the networking is incredible, um, but it really kind of broadens your horizons and I think it prevents you from being so narrow-minded at times. How did FDIC come to be? So I had a friend that taught there and was telling me about it. And if I remember right, I can't remember if I got picked up the first time I submitted for FDIC. Maybe I did. But again, just like any other conference, I dropped it in there. And I'm like, (laughs) I can remember seeing the email. Like once I dropped my submission, it was like, we received your application. Just be patient with us because we get like 90,000. I can't remember it was that high, but it was a lot. And I'm like, there ain't a snowball's chance in hell that I'm going to be going out to FDIC. All of a sudden, I get an email that says your program was selected. I was like, holy cow. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. So I was super stoked, man. I'd never been to FDIC before. It was incredible, man. So, I mean, I had my two-hour time slot. Other than that, I was there the whole week. So I was able to participate and listen to other people that I've always wanted to hear and I look up to and respect. And it was just such a cool experience, man, to one, not only go there and just get the training and the education, but just to be around like 30,000 people like me, like just a total nerd. Somebody's just ate up with the fire service and everybody around you is the same way. Like a whole damn city just full of these people. It was great. Right. <laughs> like this is the yeah. land of my people. What prompted you to write your book? So I had been writing, you know, I was doing blog entries for fire engineering and, and writing some stuff for other magazines. And I don't remember having this like aha moment, but it was just one day I said, like, you know what, what if I take all the stuff I've been writing? I've written about a variety of different topics. Like, let me just put it all in one spot. So I came up with some chapters. I came up with some outlines of the things that I really wanted to talk about. And again, it was driven from, I'm a huge bookworm and I'll read anything you put in front of me. And I was reading a lot of good leadership books and they're all awesome. But I was like, again, I want to give somebody my perspective. I want to focus on that narrow part of someone's career where they're a company officer and talk specifically about company officer leadership. And maybe I can help some folks out there that go through the same struggles as I do. They have the same challenges and experiences and everything else. And I started writing about these topics or the chapters, if you will. And I would write for a while. I was consistent with it for a few months. And then I wouldn't do it. I just kind of put it off. I would go back and forth a lot as far as writing the book. You know, I went through phases where I'd read it. And I'm like, who the hell am I? I'm not writing this book. Like, 
I'm not a 30 year fire chief. I don't have all these years and years of experience, like all these qualifiers in my mind. I kept telling myself, who am I to write this book? I'm not an author. I haven't been around forever. You know, I tell people all the time, like, if you think you're going to pick that book up and it's going to be this grand wealth of dealing with every situation, you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) My goal with the book is to try to relate to company officers or thinking about being company officers or firefighters at the company level. Like, hey, this is what we need to do to maintain cohesion at the company level to make our fire departments awesome. And so I just got back after it and kept typing and finally finished that sucker up. From that, and you've mentioned self-awareness and that humility aspect a few times, which I don't think anybody should ever let go of, but at a certain level, it can hold a lot of people back and they would take that initial first half step towards something and then just walk away and never look back. So would you speak to those people and make any recommendations that they should just go ahead and get in the ring anyways? Yeah, man. I mean, I did it. I think that everybody has something to offer. And my experiences differ from yours and everybody else's. You are only contributing if you decide to stick with it, whatever the goal, the project, the topic is. If I stick with this, can I add value to my firehouse? Can I add value to my department? Can I add value to the fire service? And if you think you can, then go for it. And will you have critics? Hell yeah. People will say it, but you know what? They're the same people who probably wouldn't do a damn thing themselves. So if you think you have something to offer, you probably do. So if there's any time in there you have that self-doubt and I shouldn't continue, think about the value you may be adding to people. And all you're going to do is contribute to that overall perspective. And the people that want it will flock to it, right? The people who care about being well-rounded firefighters, well-rounded company officers, just well-rounded people and human beings in general, they're not going to look at your stuff and say, who's this fly-by-night person? They're going to support you because they want to hear from you. They want to hear about your experiences. And maybe they could cherry pick something from you along with a lot of other people. So a lot of us are very similar. A lot of us have very similar experiences and those circumstances. So I would say march on. If you have an idea in your mind, see it through to fruition. And I'm sure it's going to add value somewhere for someone. And would you agree that carrying that humility piece through the project all the way is what makes it honest and genuine and authentic and what actually makes it good? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I would just tell myself, look, you have 15 years in the fire department. Just speak to what you care about. Don't try to overstep any boundaries. I'm not creating anything new here. Like This is not the first book on company officer leadership, I'm pretty sure. Just stay humble. Just be glad you have an opportunity to share your experiences and then go from there. Um, But I think staying modest about your approach to the work, whatever you're working on, it's only going to help you put out a better product. And again, like you said, a more genuine product. People are going to be able to read that or look at something and say, you know what, they did this because they cared. They did this because they were genuine. And they did this because you know, they were trying to truly add some value here. They're not just trying to be some jackass, just trying to make a headline or something. Have you struggled with any physical or mental setbacks or challenges? No, I haven't. Physically, I've been healthy. Uh, you know, I try to keep myself in shape. I haven't had any injuries in the fire department, minor ones, nothing crazy. So no setbacks there. Uh, the mental stuff has been good. I haven't had any issues there. I struggle on certain calls like anybody else. You have ones that stick in your brain. And But I have a good support system. My wife's a nurse, so that helps. I have an outlet where I can come and talk about stuff. And then I try to, and I'm not always the best at it. I'll be the first one to admit it. But when I come home, I try to keep the firehouse at the firehouse. And I'm not always very good at that. But When I come home, I got my two boys. It's just time to be a dad. So I disconnect. I think about just playing with them and rolling around on the floor and and traveling with my family and just relaxing and fishing or whatever it is just to take my mind off work and keep my mental health. Have you witnessed other people struggle? Only one person comes to mind in my whole time in the fire department that had some struggles. 
In fact, just recently, I've tried to help them through some things. In fact, two, two now come to mind, but one, the most recent. And the one that the most recent was harder for me because this person was real close to me. But yes, I've had to help people deal with some depression. I've had to help that person deal with some challenges at work and at home and just trying to be a good friend. And it's been interesting. Like I've never had to deal with that before. Right. So it's like, well, how do I approach this? How do I make sure I'm saying the right things? How do I make sure I'm asking the right questions? This person was going through a pretty bad bout of depression. And I can remember even at one point, like asking them, Hey man, have you thought about killing yourself? That was never going to be an easy question for me to ask, but I can remember taking one of Dina's classes, Dina and Ollie, and I can remember her saying, just ask him, bro. Just ask him. What do you mean just ask him? Like, literally just ask them that question. She's like, you have to ask them. Dude, have you thought about killing yourself? Seriously. And I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And I did it. And um, they were open about it. They said, it's crossed my mind. I thought about this. And it ended up being like conversation. And it was productive, I believe. But it was like, man, you know, like, I really don't want to screw this up. Here I am trying to be a good friend and an, an advocate for this person and, and really try to help them out. I don't want to screw it up because I care about this person. I love this person. So this is tough. This is tough. But it's definitely we're on the slope now. So things have been going really good. As a service, do you think that we're moving in a positive direction? Do you think we're doing our forefathers justice? I think so. I think we are. And maybe I'm a bit of an optimist, but I believe we are. The people that I see that run in my circle. And I try to pay attention to things outside, of course, too. But I feel like everybody is working to make the fire service better. I, I feel like the majority of people want to see this better than they found it. They're trying to stay innovative and find new ways to do things, but also not forgetting about how things were done then and holding on to traditions because we don't have many of those left. They seem to be fading. Little ones that we really need to be careful that we don't lose. So I would say, yes, we are. And it seems like the last five, six years, I feel like there's just this big push for people to just get better at everything, like masking up, right? Who would have thought there would be hundreds, probably thousands of videos on masking up, shaving seconds? Like if you were to ask me 10, 15 years ago, I got in the fire department, like, hey, man, did you know there's going to be like videos coming on how to shave like five, 10 seconds on mask? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, whatever, dude. Masking up, seriously, who can't mask up? But it's great, though, because I feel like people are hungry. Like, they're constantly looking at ways to get better. And I don't know if it was always like that. Maybe it was. We didn't have the exposure then like we did now. So I hope it was that way. But I wasn't around then. So just what I see now, people want to do good. Masking up, stretching lines to the front door, taking care of patients, timing themselves during company drills. Like, all this stuff is awesome. So... I think the majority of our forefathers would be proud of our fire service and what we're continuing to do, but we got to make sure we don't screw it up. We don't want to develop that culture of apathy, and we don't want to lose focus on the public and really why we put that right hand in the air. But I think we're doing a pretty darn good job. Firefighters, brand new ones on up to people that have been around for 30, 40 years are really starting to encourage and teach other people and look for just one more way to, to get better today than they were yesterday. So I think we're doing pretty good. You mentioned at FDIC having that experience of like, oh, these are my people. So do you think that that's an example of what social media and the internet has done for the fire service in positive ways, the people that are discovering that their people are out there, that maybe if they're in a department where they maybe feel like their voice is quieted, that their department is the service, not necessarily their home department. Yeah, I think it's been a tremendous help. You know, social media is like the best thing and the worst thing that's ever happened to the fire department. 
on the best side of things, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. All of a sudden, the blinds went up. It's like, holy crap, these people are out there. And they all support each other. You can hop on Facebook or YouTube or any of the social media outlets, reach out to somebody. It's like, hey, bro, I saw this. I was thinking about doing this in my department. And it's like, shoot me your email, man. I'm going to send you everything I have. Everybody's just super supportive. And it's been compounded because of social media. Like, Not that we didn't do that before. People still networked and they helped and everything like that. But look at how many of these people are out there and they're all supporting each other. I think it's awesome. So I'm going to ask you a few standard questions and you can be as long-winded on as you want. Okay. Shared dorms or separate rooms? Shared dorms. Camaraderie. I think about the open bay in the Navy. Obviously, Navy, they're cramming hundreds of sailors into like a tuna can. But I tell you what, I miss the bunk room. So as an officer, I have my own bunk room, right? Which is nice sitting there and watch TV. Like no one's in there like farting on me or like snoring next to me. But man, I miss the bunk room because when I was a firefighter, I'm sleeping in there. There's a bunch of guys. It's open bay and fire station designs now that they're getting away from that. But it was just an open room with a bunch of bunks. And we would just stay up at night, messing with each other, pranks, talking, just goofing around. And it was like, man, that was just so awesome. And I miss the bunk room sometimes at night. So shared rooms, definitely. Eat together or every firefighter for themselves? Eat together. Absolutely eat together. My grandfather, I can remember when I was going through the academy, one of the very first things he said to me, and I'll never forget it. Like he didn't say, hey, when you get to the station, check off the tools, respect the senior guys. His very first piece of advice to me was make sure you eat with the men. Because it's family time. He was kind of animated. He's like, if you got some weird diet where you're not paying in, like, I guess that's okay, but you better eat with the men. So absolutely sharing meals together still today. That's like a huge tradition in North. We call it our syndicate. So like, hey, are you paying into the syndicate? The syndicate is just everybody eating dinner together. And if somebody's out like, no, man, I brought my own stuff. It was like cannibalism. It's not as bad as it used to be, but they're like, what do you mean you're not eating in the syndicate? That person would be like first one on the transfer list. <laughs> so absolutely eating together family time. I've been loving hearing all the different terminology for that, like the kitty, yep. the clutch. Now the syndicate, I've never heard that before. It's a new one. Yep. Love it. Rotating positions or know your role and stay in your lane? Ooh, that's a good one. I would say rotating positions. And I say that because of where I come from. Not that knowing your role, stay in your lane, engine guys be engine guys, truck guys be truck guys, and that's great. But a lot of times that's not the reality. People move around, they go to the train division, they get transferred to a different station, they get promoted, now they're on a different rig. So I think if you can rotate positions and be a well-rounded firefighter, you're going to be beneficial in a lot of different roles as opposed to just one. Crew workouts or solo? Crew workouts, depending on what it is. Sometimes my crew will throw like this hardcore CrossFit workout. Hey dudes, I'm just going to go lift weights upstairs. But most of the time, crew workouts, because again, I think you work together. Again, I think that's kind of that family time. Almost similar like sitting around the galley table and eating dinner or lunch. You guys are all working out together and you know what happens is it's not just working out right there's humor there's fun it's just cohesion taking place so i'm really interested to ask you this one because you've actually done shipboard firefighting smooth bore or fog nozzle and you can expand in any <laughs> direction you want on that all right perfect i would go with smooth bore primarily smooth bore but yes you're right on the ship fog and that's because that's kind of where the fog was developed coast guard guy lloyd layman so shipboard navy fog particularly because of the compartmentation and materials, things like that. But if you're asking me today, uh, smooth bore all the way. Low nozzle reaction, GPM, got a punch, high absorption rate, you name it. Smooth bore all the way for me. Not that I'm anti-fog. Uh, the two and a half inch line, is it an interior, exterior, or both? Ooh, that's a good question. 
two and a half line, definitely. I would say both. Uh, when used correctly in the right application, both, right? The occupancy will dictate the tactics all the time. Um, so I think if you've got a well-trained crew and they know what they're doing, both interior and exterior. Truck, engine, or rescue? Definitely not the rescue, not the truck, engine company all the way for me. Engine company is the center of the fire department universe. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned slicers and the fact that you were involved when that first came up. I'd love to hear your take on acronyms, yay or nay. Uh, I would say nay. <laughs> um, mostly nay. And my hate for acronyms probably comes from the military where there was an acronym for just about everything. But I would say nay on the acronyms. Not that some of those can't be useful, but sometimes when it's on an overload, it's like, well, wait a minute. Was it Slicers? Was it Dyson? Was, was it uh, Wallace? Was High? Cole's Wealth? I Lover's You? It's like, holy cow, these are all starting to run together. But I'm not much of an acronym guy, but I know they have their benefit here and there. Is there anything else you want to cover or chat about before we part ways um i can't really think of anything man this was a really good variety of questions and topics and it's been fun for sure i like discussing all this stuff awesome so where can people reach out to you and how do they find your book give me all those details okay so as far as reaching out to me probably the easiest way is just to look me up on social media find me on facebook first last name jared sergi you can go to the trial by fire facebook page and then you can search me on instagram as well that's probably the easiest way. As far as the book goes, it's carried on Amazon. So you can hop on Amazon and just type in no-nonsense leadership, and it should pop right up there. There's been a little bit of a delay with all this craziness going on, but that's the best spot to get your hands on it. How's the response been overall? To the book, it's actually been really good. It's been really good. I've had a few departments that have started purchasing the book for their officer development programs, which I thought was really cool. It's just neat. It's just neat to see that people connect to it. And I guess for me, it's a home run because when I wrote the book, that's what I wanted, right? I wanted people to relate to what I was going through. I wanted to be able to hopefully help somebody that was in that role of a company officer and say, Hey, look, man, this is what works for me. This is what didn't work for me. Like read this, try it. Let me know what you think. And it's been really positive. I've gotten a lot of good feedback about it. So it's, it's been pretty neat. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been great to be able to get to know you a little bit deeper and I'm sure we'll do a part two down the way. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. Thanks for having me. This has been great.